Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Airing It Out, Files from Leahy's Broadcast Booth. I'm John Leahy. Thanks so much for being with us today. Hope you had a Merry Christmas. I hope Santa was good to all of you. And I want to wish you all a very happy new year coming up. We're just a few days away from ushering in 2022. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode. Uh, Had some homemade holiday music for you and uh, really put a lot into that episode. So if you haven't had a chance to uh, take a listen, I invite you to do that. Also, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast. Uh, You can do that through Apple or Spotify or basically any place where podcasts are heard. Well, we're going to finish up the 2021 season of the podcast, and uh, what better way to do it than to uh, take a look at college hockey here at the halfway point. And my guest on the podcast this week is a gentleman we've had on before, but uh, he's a a, a terrific college hockey uh, personality, uh, college hockey writer. He writes for uh, College Hockey News, also NeutralZone.net, and several other uh, outlets. Uh, He's also helped us out on the Merrimack broadcast uh, more times than I can remember. Uh, Mike Mike McMahon is with us. Uh, Mike, uh, great to have you with us, and uh, hope your holiday was great. My holiday was great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope yours was as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, were there any hockey presents delivered by Santa to the McMahon household? <laughs> oh, there were there were quite a few. Uh, two two kids that play hockey, so we had we had some sticks and we had some uh, some puck. Oh, it was puck set thing and and a couple of sweatshirts. It was. Mostly hockey themed, actually, by the time you get done with the whole thing. (laughs) Well, great stuff, Mike, and uh, glad to hear it was a great holiday for you. I thought today what we'd do is we'd uh, take a look around college hockey, uh, perhaps uh, take a look uh, conference by conference uh, and uh, break it down through the halfway mark. Also, uh, perhaps discuss some important topics that are going on in college hockey right now. And I guess we'll jump right into it, Mike. We're at the halfway mark of the season. Let's go conference by conference. Let's take a look. We'll go in alphabetical order too we'll start with atlantic hockey mike uh, bentley on top in that conference uh, they lead canisius by three points really tight race there 14 points separates the conference from uh, top to bottom uh what have you seen from the atlantic conference through the first half uh, maybe the biggest surprise and uh, the biggest disappointment so far yeah i think bentley's probably up there as one of the bigger surprises uh they've, they've played really well in league they've played really well out of league too i mean they've got a, a win over ohio state uh, they've played some really tough non-conference opponents, and they've played them really well, won a couple of games. Uh, so they're definitely up there as a surprise. Uh, I just think, you know, going in, looking at who they lost, they lost Jacob Novak in the transfer portal to Northeastern. He was their best player last year. So you just kind of look at that, and you're like, wow, you know, they may have a tough go of it. Uh, but they they picked up a couple of guys in the transfer portal that have really helped them out. Phil Nyes uh, coming over from Miami was one of them. And they they played really well. I mean, they played really well. And, and they should be a team that contends – uh, in that league in the second half, I, I think in the top probably four or five. Uh, another team that probably is, when you look at their record, a little surprising on the disappointing end is AIC. But uh, the one thing I would caution people when looking at, a, a, at AIC, who's been probably the premier team in that league for the last two or three years, uh, look at who they played in non-conference games. They right. basically played, they played a hockey schedule. Right. right. They, they had two games at UConn canceled, but they had two with Providence. I think two with UMass. Uh, I think they played Boston College. Uh, I forget exactly everyone, but it was they played almost exclusively hockey East teams. Uh, so that's it's really tough to judge them based on that. You know, uh, they really they challenge themselves with that non-league schedule, which they think they should. So now it'll be interesting to see what they look like in the second half, 
when they're going to play pretty much exclusively league games. I think they'll be a team that in the league standings will definitely be uh, a team that challenges near the top. And maybe right now, some people aren't expecting that given where their overall record is. But like I said, their overall record, uh, you got to kind of look at who they've played out of league. Yes, if you take a look at uh, the Atlantic so far, Mike, Bentley is three games over 500, but you take a look at everybody else, they're either at 500 or below. Uh, Do you expect uh, much better play from those Atlantic teams in the second half? Yeah, yeah, and I think some of that is like just traditionally those teams struggle in non-conference games, Uh, like we just talked about with AIC, right? So first half of the year, you're kind of front-loaded with non-league games. Now that they're getting into the league games, I think you're going to see the teams that are – the better teams in that league rise to the top. And, and you're going to have a team, whether it's Canisius or Bentley or AIC, you know, someone's going to go 12 and six in the league. So they may go from a team that's one or two games or three games below 500 to all of a sudden in February, you know, there's six games above 500 just because of the fact that they're, they're really winning their league games and, and kind of rising to the top that way. So I think that's what we'll probably see. That's what we usually see from that league is, you know, just they, they tend to struggle non-league games. And then there's always those, three or four teams that are the, the, the cream of the crop in the conference that kind of rise up in the second half. And exciting news from Sacred Heart, Mike. Uh, they're going to be getting a new arena down there. So we uh, Merrimack and Sacred Heart played earlier this year. We talked to C.J. Maritolo uh, before the game, and he gave us an update on the arena. But uh, certainly exciting times down there at uh, Sacred Heart. That rink is going to be gorgeous, too. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be one of the nicer rinks uh, in New England. You know, forget just their league. Uh, I think that's a league. That's a rink that any Hockey East team, would be proud to have the facilities that they're going to have down there are going to be top of the line. So uh, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see what that does for the program. I mean, they, they're building it too with enough seats that if hockey East were ever interested, uh, the attendance uh, mandates that the league has for new teams would not be an issue for sacred heart to meet given the capacity of that new building. So I, I don't know. I think sacred heart has interest in hockey East. I don't know that, that hockey East necessarily has interest in them yet, but, I mean, when you're pouring a $70 million building into your uh, – building it out on your campus and giving it to your program, it would certainly, I would think, make you attractive to, to another league. Mike, let's move on to the Big Ten. You talk about the Big Ten right now. The Michigan Wolverines uh, certainly have to be right at the top of the conversation. They lead uh, in that conference. Uh, they are 14-6 and six overall. Um, 500 or over six of the seven teams in the big 10 are uh, over 500 uh, i guess except for wisconsin everybody's having a terrific year how, how have you seen the big 10 uh, again biggest surprise maybe dis- uh, biggest disappointment i i think the the biggest surprise and we just talked about them a little bit with bentley is ohio state i mean i talked about bentley's win over ohio state as being a big win for them and then you kind of look at what ohio state has done outside of that bentley weekend and They've played really good hockey, and they were coming off of a year. They were coming off of four twenty-win seasons in a row last year. Last yep. year they were well under five hundred. Um, you know, it's a different type of season. COVID kind of really threw a wrench into everything last year, which I understand. But you know, they were coming off of a, of a disappointing year, and I think a lot of people thought they were going to have to to rebuild a little bit. But but man, you know, they've, they've come out of the blocks really really well in the Big Ten. It looks like they're going to be. They're not going to contend near the top. Uh, you know, because Michigan is in Minnesota and Notre Dame, they're all so good. But I think Ohio State went from a team that a lot of people thought were going to be sixth or seventh in that conference, and they should contend, you know, somewhere around fourth or fifth. I mean, that, that's – they've had a nice start. Uh, and then as far as a disappointment goes, it's 
they're still one of the top teams in the league, but I really expected Minnesota to be a lot better than they are at this point. Yeah. Uh, they've just been so inconsistent. You know, and I thought, honestly, all the talk at the beginning of the year was Michigan, and understandably so, with the number of, of first-round picks that they have on their roster. But I really thought that Minnesota was the best team in the Big Ten just because of who they brought back, the experience that they brought back, a lot of older guys. Jack LaFontaine was one of the best goalies in the country last year. He came back for his fifth year. You know, I looked at Minnesota going, yeah, Michigan, I get it. First-round picks all over the place in that Michigan team. But this Minnesota team, I think, had the experience and, and just older guys that may have been able to neutralize some of that in, in their matchups. And they, they, they have at times, they, at other times, they've looked like a team that's a little bit lost. They're just kind of been very inconsistent. So I don't know what we're going to see from them in the second half. I still think that they have the potential to be the best team in the league, but they haven't been yet. And I don't know if they're going to be in the second half. I think they've got some proving to do. It's been a tough year for Wisconsin, Mike. Uh, was that expected? Yes and no. I mean, I expected them to take a step back. When you lose Cole Caulfield and uh, <laughs> 30, 40 goals, how many goals he scored last year? Right. Uh, you know, he was at a goal a game. Uh, you know that it's going to be a little bit of a step back. Um, but I don't know that, that anybody expected them to step back as far as they've stepped back. I mean, they're struggling just to score two goals a game at this point. Uh, it's never one guy. I, I'm always a big believer and it's never just one guy. But man, like it's real hard to look at, at Wisconsin and not think, you know, how much of it really was Cole Caulfield last year. Right. Because right. Their, their offense has just been non-existent this year. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of them. You know, they've gotten good goaltending. Uh, their defense has been okay. They just have not been able to score goals. And, and I think people expected that. I don't think anybody expected it to the degree that we've seen it through the first half. Okay, Mike, let's move over to the CCHA. Uh, Minnesota State, 11 up on Bemidji State. Uh, this Minnesota State team is 16-4 uh, and four overall. How good is this Minnesota State Mavericks team? <laughs> they're, they're very good. And they're yeah. very good at playing their style of game, which is just possession. Possession, possession, possession. They don't let the other team have the puck. They don't let the other team have shots on goal. Uh Dryden McKay, their goaltender, who broke Ryan Miller's shutout record earlier this year, career shutout record, has two shutouts this season where he's made less than 10 saves. Wow. <laughs> there was at one point, I think he had back, this is earlier, it was October, November. I think he had back-to-back shutouts where he made a combined total of 16 saves. I think it was nine and seven. I mean, they just don't allow shots. Like, it's, it's crazy how, how hard they play away from the puck to just not allow shots and then just to have so much possession themselves. They're the real deal. I mean, I don't, they don't really have that superstar factor that like a Michigan has with all those first round picks, but man, are they good at playing the way that they play? And they're going to be a tough team to beat in the playoffs because like Minnesota, a lot of those guys have been around for a number of years. They're older, they're experienced, and they're very good at playing their style of hockey and their style of hockey is very hard to play against. So I think they're going to be a real, real tough out in the second half. Yeah, absolutely. And you saw what they did to UMass that first weekend. Uh, Greg Carville was a little anxious about that uh, series with Minnesota State, but uh, you handle the national champions in their rink the way they did. That's awfully impressive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I believe, I could be right. I know at least as of a couple of weeks ago, those were still UMass's only two regulation losses of the season. Right. I don't know if they've had one since then. But uh, that, that, that's 
ultra impressive to do what they did to UMass first week of the year. I mean, they came out ready from week one. All right, Mike, in that conference, uh, what would you uh, analyze as the biggest surprise and perhaps the biggest disappointment? And what do you see for the second half in that conference? Uh, the big One of the bigger surprises for me has been Bowling Green. Uh, just how well they've been able to play given who they lost. They were another team that was just kind of ravaged in the transfer portal. And I know talking to Curtis Carr, who is a former assistant at Merrimack, who we know real well, uh, is an assistant at Bowling Green now. You know, I talked to him over the summer and he said, yeah, you know, we're getting killed in the transfer portal, but these are all guys that were graduating anyway. So it wasn't like they were opting to not come back. Uh, they, they had guys that they just, they didn't have the funds to bring back. Like their school was not willing to necessarily fund 27 scholarships for guys to play their fifth year. Yep. So a lot of those transfers were fifth year players. Quite a few of them ended up at Boston college. Um, so that was, I think, the, 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 minds, uh, the, the, the word on Bowling Green going into the year was they were really good last year, but they lost so many guys. You know, that, yeah. I think a lot of people picked them to be middle of the pack in the conference, and they've come out and played well. I mean, I think they're a step below Minnesota State. Uh, they're a step below, um, you, you know, a step below even Michigan Tech. But they're a team that I think can make some noise in the second half as they kind of, you know, gel a little bit more. And, uh, and and have things come together. And, and I think they're going to be a team that's really, really difficult to play against just because they've always been that way. They're kind of like Minnesota State. They've always been a tough team to play against, and they've got a lot of new faces in there right now. Uh, but I think when those new faces kind of grow into their roles a little bit, uh, they're going to be a team that can make some noise in the second half. What about uh, a pleasant surprise out of the CCHA? Has there been anything that's caught your eye? Uh, I mean, I think I think Northern Michigan has played well at times, which has been good to see. I mean, they're always a program that's easy to root for. Uh, another surprise would probably be Lake Superior State. You know, they're kind of in the same boat as Bowling Green. Lost a lot of guys in the transfer portal, but have played well at the beginning of the year. They've hit a little bit of a slide here coming into the holidays, but uh, they were a team that was playing well at the beginning of the year, and uh, that's a place. <laughs> Lake State is a place that can can fall in love with their teams. I mean, they're hockey crazy up there, so if they're competitive the way they were last year and the year before, uh, that could be a fun place to play. Okay, Mike, let's move over to the ECAC. Uh, well, a great start for Cornell. That's a terrific hockey team they have there. Uh, they're 9-1-1 overall. Harvard and Quinnipiac right on their tail. Quinnipiac's had a terrific uh, first half of the year. They're 14-1-3. How do you break down the ECAC? And again, let's keep with the same theme. Uh, maybe your biggest surprise and a team that uh, didn't do as well in your eyes. Yeah, I, I think Quinnipiac, as well as Quinnipiac has played, and I think people expected them to be good. They're still probably my biggest surprise out of that out of that conference. Okay. Them and Cornell, because yeah. um, I thought Quinnipiac was going to be good. People were saying in the summer, people that I trusted, hey, this Quinnipiac team's going to be a really good team. But I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I can see it. You know, I'm not saying they won't be, but I thought they still had some some questions to answer. And man, they they, they played great. They put, I think they're the best team in the East. You, know, you can right. find ECAC, Atlanta Hockey, and Hockey East. I think Quinnipiac's the best team in the East. And the reason why I say they're, they've been one of my bigger surprises is I don't think I expected that in the preseason. Right. So I think, but I think they are the best team out East for sure. Uh, and the other one is Cornell, just with the number of guys that had to sit last year because the Ivies didn't play. And then right. on top of that, the number of guys they lost to transfer because the Ivies weren't playing last year. I had no idea what to expect from this Cornell team or any of the Ivy League schools, really, because you just didn't know. You didn't know what they were going to look like. It was such a different you know, scenario from what it was a couple of years ago for those teams. Cornell, the unfortunate part is Cornell, when they paused 
initially in March of 2020, Cornell was the best team in the country. Yeah. Two losses. Yep. Like a lot of people, myself included, thought that Cornell team was going to win the national championship. And then they don't even get a tournament to play in. It's like, it's such a, a gut punch for them. Uh, and then they lost guys in the portal when the Ivies didn't play the next year. For them to come back and play as well as they've played uh, after missing a season with so many new faces, including a, a goaltender, uh, which might be the most important position, especially for a team like them and the way they play, uh, has been really, really impressive. So I, I think, you know, there's kind of two surprises there. Quinnipiac for being the best team, I think, in the East, uh, and then Cornell for, I wouldn't say pick it up exactly where they left off two years ago, but pretty darn close. I got to ask you about Harvard, too, because this is a team that started out like gangbusters. I believe they scored nine goals in their first game of the year, but uh, the Crimson seem to have tapered off a little bit. Uh, what's your assessment on them? It's, it's kind of like what we were saying about Michigan, uh, only they're where Michigan was last year. Uh, they get a yeah. lot of high-end talent on that team, but it's a lot of young talent, a lot of 18-year-olds. And I think that's hard. It's hard for guys who are 18 years old, even if they're supremely talented. It's hard for guys at that age to have consistency playing against 24 and 25 year olds, especially when you got guys now that are playing 50 years because of COVID. Uh, it can yeah. be really hard for those guys to spend. Look at Cornell. I mean, the Cornell team is massive. A lot of guys that are 6'2, 6'3, 6'4, 24 years old, and you're an 18 year old kid, like that's that could be men against boys <laughs> sometimes, right. which I think is a big reason why that they've had some ups and downs. It's just it's been a little bit of a struggle for them to kind of find that consistency. But as we saw, and as you pointed out, like when they, when everything's clicking and you don't know when it's going to happen, it could happen any night. You don't know. But when everything's clicking, they have that potential to break out and score eight eight or nine goals. So they're a scary team to have to match up against. Are there any teams in that conference, Mike, that uh, have been somewhat of a disappointment uh, from your point of view? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the tough part, again, is because with the Ivies, you just you didn't know what to expect from them, uh, given that they had to take a year off. But there's a couple of teams in there that I think I figured would have been doing better at this point in the year. Uh, Harvard probably is one, just with the talent they have, even though I think it's tough for them to, to find that consistency. Yale is definitely one. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't expect Yale to contend near the top of the conference, but I expected Yale to be better than they are. And they, they've, they've had a, a little bit of a stretch here where they played well. But at the beginning of the year, I mean, I think they had gotten shut out something like four out of six games. Like, they were struggling to even score goals at the beginning of the year. So they're a team that's been a little bit of a disappointment. I expected them to be able to compete a little bit more. Uh, and then there's a couple of others. I mean, Clarkson's had their ups and downs, and Clarkson was a team that I was excited about at the beginning of the year. They're starting to play better now, so that's a good sign. Uh, Colgate looked really good at the beginning of the year. I, I don't think there was a lot of expectations on Colgate coming into the year, but – uh, when we saw them, when Merrimack played them earlier in October, they were 4-0, I think, or 5-0 and at one point. So I think once that happened, they probably had some expectations, you know, put on them, and then they kind of hit the skids here and haven't really played well in the second half of the first half. So that, that's been a little disappointing, too, just after the start that they had. Uh, but really, the, the one that kind of sticked out the most to me has probably been Yale, because even though, you know, again, nobody expected them to contend near the top of the ECAC, they've always been competitive. You know, they've never, you've never looked at Yale and have said, wow, you know, they're, they're probably the weakest team in the league. And right now I probably look at Yale and think they might be the weakest team in the league. Them or Dartmouth. 
Wow. Okay. Uh, we'll move on to Hockey East now, Mike. And uh, you take a look at where Hockey East is right now. You see the usual suspects, UMass. Uh, Northeastern's had a terrific first half. Uh, Providence is strong. But look who's leading here at the halfway mark. Norm Bazin's UMass Lowell Riverhawks. Uh, you know, uh, that's not really a surprise. Uh, Norm Bazin uh, gets the most out of his teams. He's done a terrific job so far at Lowell. Uh, let's talk about Hockey East. Lowell, UMass, Northeastern, neck and neck. Providence and BC are right there as well. Uh, uh, let's talk about the Hockey East, uh, maybe your biggest surprise, how you've analyzed it so far, and uh, your biggest disappointment. Biggest surprise is UMass Lowell. Yeah, I mean, they've always been competitive. Like you said, they've always been good under Norm Bays, and I did not think they would contend near the top of the league this year, uh, only because they're, they're always good defensively. They're always hard to play against. I didn't think they had the scoring. Uh, and I remember saying that in the preseason, like, who's going to score their goals? Like, it's just, I don't know who's going to be. Even you, you look back at those Lowell teams in the, the mid-2010s that were winning hockey's championships, and they won it on the back of, of Connor Hellebach and, and good goaltending and really, really good defense at the front of their own net. But they also had guys that could score. You know, you had a yep. C.J. Smith. C.J. Smith that went in there and scored 20 goals. And Joe Gambardella who would go in there and put up 40 points. They still had guys that could put up 30, 40 points. I didn't know that I saw that on this roster. So I'm like, I, just, I don't know who's going to score their goals. I expect, I think I had to pick sixth. You know, I thought they'd be, I thought they'd win. They'd probably lose a lot of two, one games or three, two games or, you know, cause I just, I didn't think they're going to have a scoring and they've had some guys that have stepped up big time. You know, Andre Lee being one of them. Uh, I watched him play against UMass a couple of weeks ago uh, when the Merrimack UConn series got washed out. And, and I was like, wow, you know, this, he really impressed. I thought that weekend they've been great. And Owen Savare has been, arguably uh, probably the number one, two or three goalie in the country, depending upon how you rank him. Uh, he's been that good. And it's what we kind of saw from him when he was at RPI, I, I think a couple of years ago. So they've been excellent. They've been excellent. They've been my biggest surprise uh, by far. And then as far as a disappointment goes, you know, I, anyone who's read my stuff or has listened to me over the last couple of years has known that I haven't, always been very high on Boston University. Yeah. Uh, I just I don't think that I think that they're kind of unstructured in the way that they play. I think they give their they give their offensive guys a lot of freedom, which I can understand when you have the type of guys that they have on your roster. But I personally believe you need to play with some sort of defensive structure in order to win games. I thought that their record last year, they went eleven and five in the regular season last year and then got lost to UMass Lowell, a team that will grind you out in the playoffs in the hockey's championship, or the hockey's final, or no, it wasn't the finals, semifinals. Uh, and then lost to St. Cloud State the same type of way in the NCAA tournament. You know, I thought they were a team that just maybe was a little bit of a, of a mirage last year. That being said, I didn't expect them to be below 500 at Christmas. Right. You know, I, I didn't think they were going to win the league. I think they were picked one or two in the league, right? Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't think they were going to win the league but I didn't expect them to be below 500 as we sit here and talk on December 29th or whatever the day is today, 28th, 29th, <laughs> right. you know, so they, they've been, they've been the biggest disappointment, I think. And there's enough talent there that they can get themselves out of it. But again, I think it's going to require them to play a different way. And how about uh, Devin Levi at uh, Northeastern? What a story he is. I think a lot of people uh, believe that he is single-handedly keeping uh, Northeastern in this race. But uh, I had a chance to see him in a game out at RPI, a game that I did remotely for the Huskies. And, boy, this kid, is uh, he's the real deal, isn't he? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and I just talked about Owen Savory a couple of minutes ago, and I said you know, he's arguably the, 
one, two, or three best goalie in the country, depending on how you rank them. A lot of people probably have Devin Levi ranked number one. Uh, save percentages are very similar, but he's faced so many more shots. Uh, this is a Northeastern team that, at forward and at defense, they're good. They're not great. They're good. Yep. Devin Levi's great. Like, yep. their goaltender's great. <laughs> I think for my money right now, he's the best goalie in the country. Uh, he is – he's just been – he's been fantastic. Uh, he's been fantastic. And I think you're right. He's kept them in some games. He might be single-handedly holding them in the race. Their team's good enough where if he plays the way he plays – you know, they don't need – they're not going to need to score three and four goals to win hockey games. There's going to be nights where they only have to score two. So even if their offense isn't where it was over the last couple of years, even if they don't have those big guns like a Tyler Madden or uh, Dylan Sakura or guys like that that are going to score 30, 40 points, they, they're not going to need to when their goalie has a 950 save percentage. So that, it's, it's been – he's been a huge part of what they've been able to do. Absolutely. Okay, Mike, let's uh, take a look at the NCHC right now. Uh, North Dakota leads the pack uh, by uh, six points over Western Michigan. Uh, Denver, uh, they're always strong. They're at third, uh, 15 points. Minnesota Duluth uh, with 14 points as well. So you look from uh, the top six spots, and they're separated by only 13 points. Uh, and another question, will St. Cloud State uh, turn it on in the second half? Uh, let's get your thoughts on the NCHC. Again, your biggest surprise, maybe uh, your biggest disappointment as well. Biggest surprise from Western Michigan. Uh, they're one of the top teams in the country. And they were a team that I thought was going to be good, you know, coming out of the NCHC. If you're good, you're going to be pretty, you're going to be ranked top 20 or so, maybe top 15. Did not think we'd be looking at them right now as, as a top five team in the pairwise, but that's where they are. I mean, they've, they've been excellent. They've been excellent. They've beaten good teams. They've taken it to teams like, uh, like, like a Michigan earlier this year. Like they, they play a style. that's going to be tough for Michigan to match up against, get an older, more physical, heavier team. Uh, they've been they've been very very good and no doubt my biggest surprise in the league probably one of my bigger surprises honestly in the country the way that they've played so far because uh, again I don't think anybody really expected them to be a top you know top five team at this point. As far as the biggest disappointment goes, I mean it's it's tough. I, I think St. Cloud State at least their run going into the holidays here has been a little disappointing. They were I think one in five or one in four in their last five something like that. Uh, so they've been a little disappointing. I've been a little disappointed in North Dakota's just kind of lack of consistency. There's nights where they look really good. Like the St. Cloud series kind of sums up both teams to me this year. They played each other right at the beginning of December. St. Cloud State won the first game eight to one. North Dakota won the second game five to three. <laughs> right, <laughs> like tail, right. Tail of two games. Both teams kind of inconsistent. Uh, and it kind of sums up both of them, I think, uh, at this point in the year. You know, I just think they, they've both been a little inconsistent. They're both really good. I mean, there's no real team in that league that that struggles against everybody else. Even Colorado College has been able to compete uh, in Chris Mayotte's first year. CC and Miami are, are clearly the, the two bottom teams in that league. Everybody else is, is pretty good. Uh, but North Dakota and St. Cloud State, I think, could be could be teams that, would contend as one of the top five teams nationally if they've been just a little bit more consistent. I think they both have times. They both have time to get there. Uh, Western Michigan and Duluth uh, are are top five in the pairwise right now. So is North Dakota because of the number of games they played. They played 19 games and they played a pretty tough schedule. Uh, I think you know right now North Dakota could have been 
one or two, maybe the clear cut number one right now. Had they just been a little bit more consistent instead of 13 and six, I mean, they're only a couple of bounces away from being like 15 and three right now, or even 16 and two uh, instead of 13 and six. So they're a little bit more consistency. And I think they're a team that is clearly uh, one of the top teams in the country. And St. Cloud State could be there too. They're right on the outside. Uh, but again, just a little bit more consistency, and they could be there as well. Mike, let's finish up with the independents. There are three independents in Division One college hockey on the men's side, uh, Arizona State, Alaska, and Long Island. Uh, Arizona State has clearly been the best of the lot. They're having a 500 year, but uh, Alaska and Long Island have uh, struggled a little bit. Uh, what have you seen from those three independents so far? Alaska has been uh, an interesting story, obviously. Uh, they a team that opted out last year, a, a team that's playing as an independent after being in the CCHA for a while. They're trying to put games together. They've had quite a few home games, which is good to see. Uh, Omaha went out and played them at home. I think Clarkson did at the beginning of the year. RPI went out there recently and played four games in a row going into the break yeah. uh, to give them some home games. They're on the road now until basically February. <laughs> right. They're on the road for a long time coming up. Uh, but it was good. You know, I, I think they played well. They played well going into the break. They beat RPI three times in a row. Going into the break, it's a tough trip for RPI, like I said, but uh, still, they, they seem to have been able to find a little bit of success here going into the holidays, which should be able to give them some confidence, I think, going into the second half. They were in a tough spot of kind of rebuilding on the fly. You know, not only do they have to start playing as an independent, and it's hard to get players up, to, up there to play in Fairbanks, but you know, you're also dealing with not playing last year and losing some guys to transfer, a couple of guys that We've seen at Merrimack, Stephen Jandrick and Max Newton were both at Fairbanks at one point. So right. lost lost some key players in, in the portal and had to kind of rebuild. So tough goal for them, but uh, I think there's some promise there in the second half. they got a tough schedule, though. Uh, Arizona State, like you said, are the, the, the best of the independents for sure. Uh, they're a team that I think, you know, as they, they have in recent years, because of the schedule they play, can compete in the pairwise and, and maybe compete for an NCAA tournament spot. They're not going to get it this year, I don't think, unless they go on a real run. Yeah. They're 28th right now in the pairwise, so they're going to have they'd have to go on a considerable run here to get themselves back in a position to make the NCAA's, which they did in 2019, and they would have done in 2020 had there been a tournament. They would have made the NCAA's that year too. So uh, they can still get themselves there, like I said, because there's a lot of hockey left, and just based on the schedule they play. They still play Cornell twice. They play BU. They play Minnesota State. I mean, so they, they've got some games where if they go on a run here in the second half, they can get themselves in the contention for a, a tournament spot. Probably not going to happen, though, at 28 at this point in the year. And obviously, they don't have a conference tournament to play in. So it's not like they're playing for an automatic bid. Uh, so that, that obviously hurts their chances. And then LIU. LIU is a team that I think is – they're not in position to make noisy yet. But they're going to be a decent team. I think they could be a lot like Arizona State as far as, you know, being maybe 500-ish as, a, as an independent program because of the fact that there's so many players that come from that Long Island area. Yeah. Uh, and Brett Riley has done a really good job of assembling a team that was competitive last year and has been able to compete this year, too. Uh, he's gone out. He was, he's smart with some transfers. You know, Billy Jerry leads, leads them in scoring. He's a transfer from RPI. Um, Jordan Timmons is a transfer from Robert Morris, uh, second in their, on their team in scoring, 11 points in 15 games. Uh, their, their goaltenders uh, are, are some transfers, a couple of transfers. Chris Carlson, who was at Anchorage, uh, has been their, kind of their number one goalie. 
and then uh, Vinny Papura, who's kind of been their number two, started his his college his collegiate career at Boston University. So he's, I think he's done a really good job. Brett Riley has of using the transfer portal to his advantage as a new program which is what some of these other schools have done too in, in trying to rebound and come back from COVID if they had to take a year off. But he's done a really good job of taking guys who are proven commodities. Like five years ago, he would have only been able to take a team full of freshmen and a couple of transfers maybe that were willing to sit out for a year. But it would have been really hard. And he's been really smart, I think, in, in kind of balancing out freshmen that he's taken in, transfers that he's taken in, which kind of immediately helps you balance out your, your scholarships. One of the biggest things, and I know it's, it's not on the men's side, but uh, when, when Merrimack started their women's program, I remember having a conversation with Aaron Hamlin about how do you manage your scholarships? Because you have 18 a year, and you can't put all 18 out there in year one, because if you do, then every four years, you're completely recycling your program, right? It's yeah. tough to, to, to manage it that way. So you know, for the first four years of their existence, she was bringing in like three or four scholarship players a year so that after you're done with four years, you've got some type of consistent build to your scholarship model. Well, yeah. Brent Riley had to do the same thing at LIU, but with the transfer portal, and, and Aaron didn't have the luxury of using the transfer portal, it didn't exist, uh, or, or the one-time transfer exemption didn't anyway. She had some transfers. But uh, with the transfer portal and the one-time exemption where guys don't have to sit, you know, Brett Riley can say, okay, we're going to take you on as a senior. We're going to give you a scholarship. We're going to take you on as a senior. So then we get that scholarship back next year. So it's not like you've got to balance it out and go through this four-year cycle of bringing in three or four scholarship players at a time. You're able to take on a couple of juniors, a couple of seniors, and really in year one or year two, have that balance spread out to the point where, okay, my scholarships are in order now. I've kind of got three or four broken out by each class and, and I'm good as long. And that's of course, assuming LIU was willing to fund 18 right from the start. I'm not sure what their financial structure is there. Some schools don't fund every scholarship, but assuming that they did, he has that ability to use the transfer portal and get that scholarship balance right away. That a lot of, a lot of schools, you know, five, 10 years ago, weren't able to do, you, you had to kind of wait and bring in a couple of freshmen a year. It's why it took such a long time right. for some teams to even be remotely competitive. LIU's been competitive in a lot of their games, and I think it's because they've been able to bring in proven guys that, that have played college hockey, and also it allows him to kind of, as, as a coach, to balance out that scholarship and, have, and put a competitive team in the ice. We're talking with Mike McMahon from uh, College Hockey News. And, uh, Mike, let's get on to some other topics here. By the way, you're listening to Airing It Out, files from Leahy's broadcast booth. Mike McMahon joining us. And, uh, Mike, let's move on to a few other topics quickly. Let's start with the pandemic. Uh, Omicron, the variant, is uh, is uh, making its way around uh, North America right now. And uh, so far, the impact on college hockey has been minimal. Uh, UConn has had four games postponed. Boston College had a couple of games postponed, which they've subsequently rescheduled. Uh, where we've all got our fingers crossed here, Mike, but uh, how do you see the second half uh, progressing with this uh, pandemic? I know it's probably impossible to tell, but uh, I guess yeah. I guess we're all hoping that uh, we continue on uninterrupted. That's the hope for sure. Uh, I don't know that that's going to happen, but that's definitely the hope. You know, I, I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little nervous. Uh, we've already had some games get canceled this week to start the second half sacred heart uh, was supposed to play somebody maybe rpi i think maybe it was 
Uh, oh, no, no, no. RPI was supposed to play at home against Vermont. It got right. moved to Vermont. Right. Sacred Heart was supposed to play. I just saw an email I got yesterday. Sacred Heart had a game this week that had just gotten canceled. Forget who they were supposed to play. Um, you know, a couple of teams have gone back to no fans. Northeastern and Yale, big two of them. Uh, Michigan is <laughs> Michigan. <laughs> Michigan's playing Michigan Tech on Wednesday, but canceled their Thursday game against Western Michigan, which opens mm. the eyes this week. Oh, wow. um, they're they're saying it's because of they're without so many guys due to injury and because of the World Juniors that they don't want to play back to back games. There's some some people that believe they just don't want to play Mich- Western Michigan short the guys that they're short because of the World Juniors. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I think I think we're gonna see I think we're gonna see an impact. UConn had a pause going into the break, as we know. Um, you know, I hope it doesn't affect anything. My fear is that it will, and the reason why I have that fear is, as we saw last year, there's a lot of schools outside of athletics at the administrative level, the presidents, board of trustees, that I think were very quick to just pull the plug on all athletics because then they didn't have to come up with a plan on how right. to, on how to make it work. Right. The Ivies did it. it. And it was almost like it was easier for them to say, we're just not going to play than it would have been for them to actually come up with a plan to play. So my, my fear is that if it gets bad, how many of those call in RPI did the same thing. How many of those college presidents are just going to go, you know what? We're just pausing everything. Right. And then what, right. you know, then what, like it could be a mess going in the second, if that's what happens, that's my, my fear is not on from an athletic standpoint. I think the athletic directors want to play. I think I know the coaches and players want to play. Uh, my fear is that we're going to have one or two or maybe more administrations that just may not place a value on athletics and say, we're just not going to do it. We're, we're, just, we're, done, we're done for now. That's my fear. Well, good news out of Western Pennsylvania, Mike. Robert Morris will be returning uh, for the 2023-24 season. Boy, that was a crazy story, wasn't it, how that all went down? And, uh, you know, I know you wrote an article on it, but uh, the bottom line is Robert Morris is coming back. What's your whole take on that situation? All the credit goes to Derek Schooley, their head coach, uh, who ended up being the kind of the the hockey operator in in charge uh, when everything happened. Their women's coach had left to take another job. Uh, the, the the short version of the story is they, they cut the program in May without telling anybody. Uh, yeah. The coaching staff, the coaching staff found out about 10 minutes before the press release went out, uh, which to me is just inexcusable. Like from the administration, we talk about administrations that might not know what they're doing. Well, that's one right there. Uh, they, they cut the program. They said it had to do with costs. At the same time, in the same press release where they announced they're dropping the hockey programs, they talked about how they just hit all these fundraising goals and had the biggest individual gift in the history of the school. Like, just tone deaf from the administration standpoint. Yeah, We're cutting program because of cost, but look at all the money we raised. Like, I was, I read it, I, I was dumbfounded. I go, this can't be real. Uh, so Derek Schooley got to work, you know, and it was him. He put the work in. He organized with a foundation that was put together by alumni called the Pittsburgh College Hockey Foundation. And they raised the money to save the program. What ended up ultimately happening was the, the school administration said, we can keep the program if you raise X amount of, of dollars to, to fund it, essentially. Those guys got together. They raised the money. They saved the program. It, it's great. And it's all due to their work. 
you know, I kind of got a little uh, aggravated, honestly, like watching the press conference right before Christmas where they announced they were coming back. And the, and the college president is up there kind of being like, we're so happy to have this back. And he's the one taking the lead in the press conference. And it's like, he was the one that, that cut the program in the middle of the night. Like, yeah, you wonder <laughs> you wonder why Robert Robert Morris didn't just come out and say right at the beginning, hey, it's a cost issue. But, but it yeah. didn't seem like they were honest about that. No, it was very weird. And, and I'll be honest with you, too, like, I have a little bit of a concern moving forward, not not for them, but in general, because we've now seen Alaska Anchorage drop their programming and it got saved by a fundraiser. Robert Morris dropped their program and got saved by a fundraiser. Uh, Alabama Huntsville did the same thing two years ago. Now they paused it until they can find a conference again, but they dropped it and they brought it back because there was a fundraising effort and they hit their goal. Again, no, I'm not speaking to anyone anyone specifically, but I think sometimes you have college administrators at the administrative level, not the athletic level, that could look at hockey, an expensive sport to to keep, and say, well, maybe we'll drop ours and see if you know alumni want to support it with fundraising, and now all of a sudden we don't have to pay for our hockey program anymore. My real concern, because it's happened three times, my real concern is that this turns into a blueprint for some schools that don't want to pay for their hockey programs, because again, it's an expensive sport between the coaches and the scholarships and the cost of ice. Like it's an expensive sport to, to sponsor. My fear is that some of these schools are going to look at Robert Morris and Acreage and Huntsville as a blueprint and say, well, we'll just drop it and you know the alumni will <laughs> will get behind it and they'll start supporting it as, as a fundraiser. Or if no one steps up to do it, well, then nobody really wants it. And we'll just drop it. That, only because it's happened three times. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, but it's happened three times. Like I, I have a real concern that some that other schools are going to look at it as a blueprint to still have hockey but not have to pay for it. Yeah, I was going to uh, bring up Alabama and uh, Anchorage, but uh, you touched on it, so I'll move on to the last topic here, Mike, and that's the uh, Friendship Four is coming back in Belfast um, next year. You're going to have a couple of hockey schools being represented, UMass Lowell and UMass, also a couple of teams uh, from the ECAC as well. Dartmouth is going over as well as uh, Quinnipiac. So uh, how great is it that this uh, is being re- uh, resurrected next year? Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's one of the premier events on the calendar, I think, uh, especially for the teams out east that participate in it. Uh, and just, it, it's a whole event. I, I know, like, we, we've heard Scott Ford talk about it, where it's not just going over there to play hockey. Like, the, the teams go over there, they learn so much about the history of the area. Uh, it, it's really a great trip, I think, for those programs to be able to take and, and be a part of. So, uh, I'm, I'm glad that it's back. I know it's also cool as a fan to be able to check out a game at like 11 a.m. <laughs> the day after Thanksgiving, you know, it's going to be on, it's going to be in the morning uh, because of the time change. So I, I think it's been, it's developed itself into being one of the premier events on the calendar uh, for those ECAC and Atlantic and hockey schools that have been able to participate. So I, I'm really glad that it's back. And I think it's just, it's another sign that hopefully, you know, we're getting towards some semblance of normalcy again. <laughs> So the question is, now Merrimack's women have already made the trip over there, and I know Scott Borick has talked about uh, the probability or possibility of the men going over, and I know he wants to go over. The question is, if Merrimack's men uh, make the trip over there, do you make the trip as well? I'd have to think about it for sure. That, that'd be <laughs> one that'd be hard to miss, right? Uh, the, the problem with it all is, is I would... <laughs> It wouldn't just be me, right? I'm sure that my wife and kids would want to go too. So it wouldn't just be a right. one-man trip. It's how do you finance a, a four, 
uh, <laughs> four person Thanksgiving <laughs> might get a little costly, but uh, I'd certainly like to. Yeah. All right, Mike, we're going to wrap things up here. How can people follow you and uh, follow your work? Uh, easiest ways on Twitter at Mike McMahon, CHM. Pretty much everything I write or am a part of will get posted there. Uh, when you post this podcast, I'll retweet it there. So anything I'm a part of will we'll end up going, uh, we'll go there at some point. So that's the easiest way. All right, Mike. Listen, we really appreciate you uh, stopping by. You're you're the utmost authority in college hockey as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we'll uh, hopefully get you back on uh, near playoff time. And uh, thanks for all you do. And uh, it, it, as I said, it's always a pleasure having you on. Sounds good, John. Anytime. I appreciate it. All right, he's Mike McMahon uh, from College Hockey News. We invite you to stay with us next week. Joe Britannia, former hockey's commissioner, will be joining us. We'll be promoting his new book late in the third. So for my special guest, Mike McMahon, I'm John Leahy saying thanks so much for joining us. We will catch you next week. Mitochondrial disease is a rare multi-symptom disease characterized by breakdowns in the mitochondria, which are specialized compartments that are present in every cell of the body except red blood cells and are responsible for creating more than 90% of the energy needed by the body to sustain life and support growth. A disease most commonly associated with children, currently there is no cure, just management of symptoms. Hugs for Mito Inc. is mitochondrial disease. Rare disease advocacy, awareness, fundraising for research trials, and hopefully a cure. To learn more, please visit hugsformito.org. 